Welcome to the Eastern Hills Audio Podcast. We exist to help as many people as possible take their next step towards finding community and following Christ. Maybe you've got questions about Jesus. Maybe you're good with Jesus, just not his church. Maybe you're feeling disconnected and want to reconnect. We think you'll find our messages both helpful and hopeful. So enjoy. Now this series, uh, Compelled, it's interesting, this word compelled, if you were to look it up, do a Google search uh, to look for a definition, the word compelled means overcoming resistance. And there is significant resistance within the Easter story. Overcoming resistance or unwillingness by an irresistible force. So my question today is this, what compels you? What compels you? That when you encounter resistance in life, where it almost might seem like overwhelming at times, how do you move through that? Maybe for you, it's your family. We've heard the stories of the, the mom with adrenaline lifting up the car in the face of adversity to rescue a loved one. Maybe for you, it's, it's fame, it's people, it's connections, it's likes, it's, it's the amount of people that you engage with in life. Maybe for others, it's fortune, it's the, the career, it's the next thing, it's the next achievement. What compels you? Now, you might disagree with me this morning, and I'm okay with that, but I've found that we are compelled by our convictions. Things that we are convinced that are true that help us overcome the most difficult of circumstances in life or things that we're passionate about in life. Two compelling stories that came across this week. Uh, One particular person was so overwhelmed by uh, diminishing wildlife in one part of the planet due to a lack of shade. He was so convicted of this being a problem that he wanted to to solve that he was compelled to respond, and he did so by planting 1,360 acres of forest and bamboo trees. Another story I came across this week, someone uh, that was compelled by what we hear more and more about this threat of extinction of bees and what that would mean for humans. Rescuing 30,000 bees from one home and relocating them by himself. It's incredible what humanity is capable of once they're convinced that something is true and how that something that is true will compel them to overcome very difficult circumstances in life. And so we might not all agree on what is true or what is not true. In a room this size and as many people that are at home online, we might have different convictions. But think about this. Have you ever been compelled by something that wasn't true? Have you ever found yourself in a situation, maybe worked up, excited about something that you were convinced was true only to find out that it wasn't? Or overwhelmed with emotion in the moment, maybe even frustrated or upset because you thought something was true only to find out that it wasn't? In your life, have you ever gone all in, just cashed in all of, you know, put all the chips on the table, anteed up to say, I'm all in on this venture. I'm all in. Significant investment. Only to find out that what you chose to invest in 
wasn't exactly what you thought it was. This is the story behind the story of Palm Sunday. See, the the final week of Jesus' life was filled with so many things happening in such a small period of time. And one of the writers and leaders within the New Testament is a guy by the name of Luke. You could call him the doctor of detail. And by profession and trade, he was one that was a scientist, one that approached life with an open mind, one that liked to open up with questions and seek out truth and interview people and and paid attention to the details. And as he recorded this, the final moments of Jesus's life, he tells a story of that first Palm Sunday and that after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going on to Jerusalem as he approached Bethany and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. Now, within the Bible, details matter because the details within the scriptures are intentional and meaningful. It's a roadmap. And so if you were the type of person that you were a skeptic and you had questions about whether you could really believe what the scriptures say and and whether they are true, we can go back and we can look at the details and say, did it really happen the way that the writer said that those events took place? place. This week I came across some research that I'm still processing and it's kind of stopped me and really caused me to think about life as a parent. And it's that from the ages of of 18 months up to the age of 13 years old, a child's worldview is being formed. How they think about themselves, how they think about others, how they view God. That means by the time they're 13 years old, so much of their mind is made up. And so I was having a conversation with my oldest daughter, and we're talking about Easter, and, and she, you know, it's, she's excited about Easter Sunday. And I said, let me, why, why, what, why do we celebrate Easter? And she said, oh, Jesus rose from the dead. I said, why do you think that's true? Well, well Dad, you're a pastor, and you said it's true. <laughs> Fair enough. But this led to a conversation in which I was walking her through something that's very important to understand about the Bible, and the Bible is more history than mystery. The Bible is an historical document that we can go back and pay attention to places and names and people as the story unfolds. See, Dr. Luke continues, he says, He sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden, untie it and bring it here. And the details within the Bible are not mundane, like a novel or or lavish or not important. You see, every little detail tells us how involved God is in the day in and day out. That every part of this story, this final week of Easter, was being driven. It was a part of God's greater plan to reconcile humanity with its creator. Jesus said, If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, Its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, 
the Lord needs it. Now, what's interesting about this account is you have Matthew's account and you have Luke's account. And if you're new to the Bible or new to Christianity, or maybe you've taken some, some classes in philosophy and, and you've heard all of the reasons why you can't bank and put trust and assurance in the Bible, this is one of these objections and say, well, why is it that Matthew's version of the story is, is different than Luke's version of the story? You know, how do we know which one to believe? Did one of them get it wrong? Well, it's a good question. And I think anytime we open up the scriptures, we should be willing to ask questions of the scriptures. I hope that our church is the type of church where we say no question goes unanswered, that we pursue the questions, that we follow truth no matter where it leads. Because the explanation is simple. Both Luke and Matthew were writing to two different audiences. That for Matthew, he was writing to an audience, a Jewish audience, a religious audience that would have been familiar with some of the prophecies of the Old Testament and some of the details that would have caused them to lean in to what was happening at this moment in the story. Where Luke was writing to an irreligious crowd that didn't have as much experience and some of these details, they would have gotten lost. So for example, Matthew adds this detail to his account of what took place this final Easter week. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through a prophet. Now, in our day and age, we have people that say, I, I've heard from God, that God has spoken to me. It, it, and sometimes in conversation, someone might say, hey, God's put it on my heart to tell this to you. Or I feel like God is, is leading me to share this with you. Now, in Old Testament times, if you had the position of a prophet, it was one of those roles where there was a high turnover rate. And the reason for this is that if you got it wrong, you weren't going to go back to the office the next day. Because to get it wrong, it was punishable by death. And so if a prophet said something, it wasn't, I think, I think, I think this is what God is saying. It was very clear that this is from God and that people would receive it as a message from God. And so he communicated, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, full of a donkey. You see, Matthew's audience, the moment that this prophecy came into, uh, came into to play with Matthew, Matthew's audience would have been saying, this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. They would have been at the edge of their seat, wanting to hear more about what happens next. And so Matthew and Luke, knowing their audience, chose to share different details. And this isn't uncommon. We still do this today. For example, if I'm having a conversation with my wife about football, she doesn't share the same passion as me as football. So, you know, I might, she might say, how was the game? It was a close game, came down to the wire, but we lost. But if I'm talking with another group of friends, I might say, hey, there was 13 seconds left on the clock. They got the ball back, kicked a field goal, went into overtime, and they lost. Some of you are shaking your head because you know what I'm referencing right now. Still, still stings a little bit. But we communicate with people based on the audience. And so we add details, we take away details. And it's the same thing with the New Testament writers. So Matthew's audience would have understood the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt the full of a donkey. Jesus, the Messiah, 
has arrived. Now, back to Luke. Luke says, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And again, Matthew adds this detail that it wasn't just the cloaks, it was also branches, which is why we call this day Palm Sunday, as a way of uh, kind of rolling out the carpet, giving Jesus the royal treatment, quoting from Psalm 118, the, the blessed Messiah, the one that people were longing for had arrived. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, the song that we just sung. And so all of this is taking place, and Luke continues now. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. And what happens next was that the indicator of who they thought Jesus was. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You see, worshiping Jesus as king was risky. Because to a pledge allegiance to Jesus was to defy the Roman emperor. It was going to cost them, but they were convicted. They were convinced. And that compelled them. But not everybody was convinced. See, Luke tells us some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus' response, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, knowing their heart, knowing their attentions, didn't back down. In fact, he doubled down, affirming their worship, affirming their response, affirming the declaration that he was and is the Messiah. But as he approached Jerusalem, as he saw what was ahead, he was overwhelmed with emotion. Luke says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. So why did he weep? Why was he so overcome with emotion. So I'm a, I'm a girl dad. I'm proud to be a girl dad. I've got three awesome uh, young ladies at home. But as a girl dad, I am dreading the dating phase. I am not looking forward to that season in life. And part of this is driven by my experience as a youth pastor because I would watch young gals lower standards to get something from someone else that they weren't getting anywhere else. And so as a dad, I know the importance of making sure that my daughter knows that she is well-loved, that she is fearfully and wonderfully made, and that her identity is in Christ. And this week, and this week, my oldest daughter, courageously, she was upset. We had had a conversation, and she said, 
She said, Dad, you know, can we have a conversation? We did. And she said, Dad, I don't feel like I'm a good kid. And we had some conversations, and I asked her about it. And part of it was because she felt like I was being too hard on her. So I listened. I affirmed her. We had a great conversation. We hugged. I left her room, and I went to my room, and I wept. Because I want better for her. Have you been there before? Where you love someone so much that when you see someone in pain or experiencing something in which you want better for them, the only thing that you can do is weep. And so Jesus looked at the people in Jerusalem recognizing that he wanted better for them than they wanted for themselves. And he wept. He was overwhelmed with emotion. And the fact is, it was true then, and it's still true today, that there's this disconnect at times when what Jesus wants for us is not what we want for us. So what do we do? How do we handle this tension that was very real that first Palm Sunday? What do we do? What do we do when what Jesus wants for us is different from what we want for us? You see, what's interesting about Jesus is that we interpret him differently than many historical figures. Think about it this way. We would never say, you know, my version of Abraham Lincoln would have never done that. We would never say my version of Gandhi would have never lived that way. And yet with Jesus, we say things like, my Jesus would not, or my Jesus would never. And on this first Palm Sunday, those that were worshiping Jesus were worshiping the Jesus that they had created, not their creator. And Jesus wept. And so, between Palm Sunday and the crucifixion, Jesus went to work. And what he chose to do was to go after three competing authorities. Because either Jesus was truly going to be their king, or he wasn't. And these three competing authorities existed then as they exist today. For many years, we've struggled with these competing authorities, my religion, my tribe, and myself. You see, in the days after Palm Sunday and before the crucifixion, what Jesus did is he walked into the temple and he began to condemn the practices of all that was going on inside. In fact, he critiques the whole temple system, this religious system that so many people were ingrained and accustomed to. Religion. Check the boxes. Obedience earns you God's favor. Do more, try harder, be perfect, be better than others. Jesus blew it up. He didn't stop there. Then he went after their tribe. And he does so by having a conversation 
about taxes, challenging where their true allegiance lied. And today, in our culture, we have tribes. And, and the problem with your tribe and maybe following after Jesus is sometime that tribe that we belong to and the behavior of that tribe doesn't align with what it looks like to follow after Jesus. And the most common example of tribes today would be our political affiliations. And whether it's the left, whether it's to the right, or somewhere in the middle, the facts are, if you're truly going to follow after Jesus, your tribe will not perfectly align with the convictions that come with being a follower of Christ. The behavior here will not balance the behavior here. But Jesus didn't just stop there. Then he went after the third competing authority, individualism. Jesus addressed humanity's longing for personal comfort, humanity's longing for possessions and material gain. And so what do we do? What do we do when we resonate with this? When what Jesus wants for us is different than what we want for us. One author says, true intimacy is only built around the freedom to disagree. And so if my wife doesn't have the ability to say things to me that are hard to hear, then we're not ever going to experience a loving relationship. Same can be said in the workplace. The freedom to disagree within a team builds intimacy. Friendships. Do you always agree with your closest friends? No. But over time, those disagreements strengthen the relationship through honest conversations. Iron sharpening iron. And so when it comes to building intimacy in a relationship with Jesus... It means that we're going to invite him into our life. And he might disagree with how we live, how we think, how we believe, how we behave, how we think about ourselves, others, and the world. But that's a critical step to developing intimacy with our creator. One theologian and thinker once said, if you believe what you like in the gospel, and reject what you don't like. It's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. You see, here's the danger. If we are our own authority, then I have no authority over you, and you have no authority over me. I can't tell you what you can and can't do, and you can't tell me what I can and can't do. In other words, if everyone only believes in themselves, then no one can say no to anyone else's behavior because we are all Believing in ourselves. And when this happens, the world falls apart. So, here's a different approach. And this is an approach that even those outside of the Bible have taken for many, many years. What if we appealed to an authority greater than ourselves? 
You see, when Martin Luther King wanted to change the world and he opposed the KKK and he wanted to see change, he didn't appeal to himself as the authority. He appealed to a higher authority. And when the founders of this country declared independence and formed the Constitution, they didn't appeal to themselves as an authority. No, no, no. They appealed to a higher authority. And when William Wilderforce led the abolishment of the slave trade in the Western world, he didn't appeal to himself as an authority. No, no, no. He appealed to a higher authority. The so much of the change that we've experienced in this world was through the appeal, not to our individual authority, but to a higher authority. And so years ago, in the church of Corinth, people were living as individuals, as they were their own authority. And here's what the Apostle Paul chose to say. He said, if we were out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Paul says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. They were compelled, compelled by what they were convinced of. And then he said this, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Think about it this way. Are we qualified to be our own authority? Do you ever perfectly meet all of your own standards in life? I don't. Like I would say, this is how I think I should live my life. You know, an easy example of this is rest. Fundamentally, I believe that rest is important. As your pastor, I will tell you that it is very hard for me to rest. And so I don't even live up to my own standard. So am I qualified to be my own authority? How about you? What would you say? C.S. Lewis once said that in response to Jesus, in response to Jesus, there are three basic options. He's either a liar and that he made it all up and he's not worthy of our trust. He's just a crazy religious leader, just another person that spoke well and was charismatic enough to get people to follow him or... Or he's Lord. And if he's Lord, and I believe he is, then this means that when I disagree with Jesus, I can still follow Jesus. And the reason for that is that I am convinced that Jesus has my best interests in mind. So much so that he died for me. That his desire for me to live in freedom with him is so significant that he bled for me. This conviction compels me so that when maybe some of the things that I read about that are challenging to me and say, I don't know, this is difficult. I'm not sure if I agree with you here. Or circumstances happen in my life and I say, God, I think you got this one wrong. 
Even when I'm in disagreement, I can continue to follow after him because of my conviction, which compels me to move through the overwhelming resistance that I experience in life. In other words, I am compelled by my convictions. You know what's interesting? In the New Testament, the the original language, the Greek language, the word compel has a couple different definitions. But one of the definitions is in a figurative context, and it describes the pressure of a violent storm. Have you you been there before? Where it's not just the, the storm that you're experiencing, but it's the pressure that comes with the storm. And it's just building. Life can very much feel that way. And maybe you showed up today and that's how you feel. And if that's not where you're at today and you've lived life long enough, you'll know that another storm is always around the corner. That that pressure is going to come again. So here's my challenge for you this week. And regardless of where you're at with Jesus, this is a question that we can all wrestle with. As you drive home today, maybe it's with some friends and you go and grab lunch. Maybe it's a cup of coffee later in the week. Maybe it's quiet introspection and just wrestling through this very important question. But I invite you to consider it. Here it is. What convinced you that Jesus is God or isn't God? You see, your answer to this question is what you're gonna hold, into, hold on to in the midst of that violent storm. Your answer to this question is when you feel the pressures of life bubbling, this is what you're going to cling to. Is it religion? Is it that you're just hoping, just praying that maybe I've been good enough that God will reward me with some favor and he'll get me out of this? Is it your tribe? That maybe you've just behaved enough, you've been loyal enough that they'll be there to help you? Maybe. Is it yourself? Are you so confident in yourself that you have everything you need to get through the most difficult circumstances of life? Or is it Jesus? Is Jesus the one that you're going to cling to in the most difficult circumstances that come your way? For me, it's not so much that I believe the scriptures to be true, it's that I've experienced them to be true. That I can look back and say, this was a season in my life where I fundamentally, I disagreed with Jesus. But I continued to follow him, to find and discover that what I wanted for me was different. But in the end, what Jesus had for me was so much better. We are compelled by our convictions. The first Palm Sunday, what people wanted from Jesus was different than what Jesus wanted for them. The next Palm Sunday was different. What changed? The cross. 
so on Good Friday, we're gonna be incredibly intentional that because of the cross, something is different about us. Because of the cross, our convictions have changed. Because of the cross, we're compelled in a different way. And that's where we're going. Would you stand to your feet this, this morning? Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. If so, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast. For more information about Eastern Hills, please check out easternhills.org. We would love to pray for you. Email your request to office at easternhills.org. If you would like to donate to the Ministry of Eastern Hills, click the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner of our website. We look forward to connecting with you again next week. Take care. God bless.